Or you can think about wine, right? So wine is an amazing area, right? And so yeah. what do we use to decide at a restaurant how good a wine is? The price. <laughs> right. People, when they don't know the price of the wine, actually prefer cheaper wine. What happens is once you tell people what the prices are, then their perceptions of the wine correlate with quality. So if I don't know what the prices are, I like a $5 wine. The average person likes a $5 wine more than a $90 wine. But if you tell them what the prices are, then they like the $90 wine more because there's a confirmatory bias there, right? right? There's a price placebo effect. Okay. Hi, everyone. This is the episode four of Stop Killing Deals. And today I'm very excited to have Carrie K. Morwedge with me. And we will be talking with Carrie about cognitive biases. Kerry is a professor of marketing at Boston University. His research examines bias in judgment and decision-making, and his fascinating research has been published in top academic journals, and his writing has appeared in popular outlets, including Harvard Business Review and New York Times. Kerry has also received a number of awards for his impressive work. So welcome to Stop Killing Deals. Thanks for having me. Very nice. And I see we have your cat there as well. So Yeah, I've got two of them. So they, they're fans of, of this medium. So thanks a lot for spending some time with us here today. And uh, we're going to be talking about cognitive biases. And for our audience, some might know what that means, some might not know what that means. So could you please help us understand what a cogn cognitive bias is? Sure. I think that's a really interesting question that we're actually learning a lot more about right now. So you could think about... We'd start off by saying that most of the decisions that we make are under uncertainty. And what I mean by that is that we often don't know how likely is some outcome, how many units people will buy or sell, right? Yeah. And so we have a rough idea. In many ways, the future is kind of like the weather. We have a rough idea of what will happen, but we don't have a precise idea. And so there's errors in our judgment decision-making. And so what those errors come down to is bias and noise, right? So noise could be random, right? So mm -hmm. people might have different kinds of influences. You might wake up and have coffee or not coffee. You might make a decision um, while you're distracted or not. But bias would be a case where we have a systematic error that people are making. And so what's, you know, it's important to reduce noise in our judgments and decisions. Yeah. And that's certainly a valuable thing that we can work on. But mm -hmm. bias is a really important kind of outcome because it makes our judgments and decisions systematically wrong. Interesting. And, and, and how many of these cognitive biases have, have we identified? Uh, we could spend the whole time just listing them. Um, yeah. but, you know, they, it, it's, it's a really interesting question about where do they come from and sort of what, how bad, like how much, what do we need to do about them? Right? right. So there's sort of two views of cognitive bias that play out in our academic literature. One is that people are amazing. Look at all the things that we can do while we're distracted. Right. We have these incredible heuristics that help us simplify all these really complex decision tasks. And they're wrong just a little bit of time. And the other kind of perspective is that we have, you know, humans make all these tragic errors and we can see that even statisticians are susceptible to them. And so we, we need to understand sort of how the mind works through them. And so that tension is, is present in the literature where we're seeing, you can generally think about heuristics as being 
you know, useful rules that we have. And they can sometimes result in some of these cognitive biases when we try to simplify the decisions that we make. Mm-hmm. So like, let's, let's take, for example, buying a car, right? Lots of people right now don't want to take public transportation. They're looking at used cars. You go and you take a look at a car and what's some cue that you would use to determine if it's been taken care of? If what has been taken care of that I bought a car? You're, you're looking at a, a new, like a used car, right? Yeah. And you go to check it out. It seems mm-hmm. to drive fine. How do you know whether or not the owner is taking care of it? I would uh, probably ask if they've serviced it, if they've got the book with all the appointments and that they did all that stuff well. Okay. And are there other cues you might use? We'll probably walk around and try to look that it doesn't have any damages and that it doesn't sound weird. And I'm not a car guy, so so I don't know what to really look for. But yeah, visually, right, so, I guess. Yeah. So most of us are using cues like, do they have the service records or does yeah. the interior look clean? Does the Is it washed? Right. Those <laughs> yeah. as cues for the quality of maintenance. Right? right. And so those are, you know, if the car looks like it's, you know, been in an accident, or, you know, if they're, the inside is in total disarray, that's probably a valid signal, right? But there's some noise in that in that judgment, right? And so Definitely. a shrewd seller could get their car detailed before they sell it, show it to you, right? And so that kind of, the error there, there's some error there. We're using this shortcut to make that kind of decision. And so cars that are going to have, been, that have been detailed are going to be seen as being more likely to have been maintained well cars that weren't right and mm-hmm. so there, there's going to be some error in our judgment and that trends in a, in a statistically significant way or you could think about wine right so wine is an amazing area because wine is really ambiguous stimulus right and so yeah. what do we use to decide at a restaurant how good a wine is if you don't know that much about the region the price right <laughs> and so what's what's amazing is th- these behavioral economic studies with with them at vineyards basically show that people when they don't know the price of the wine actually prefer cheaper wine. So most people price price is usually negatively correlated with the quality of, or people's enjoyment of wine, right? Mm -hmm. Except for sommeliers who show like a positive relationship. But what happens is once you tell people what the prices are, then their perceptions of the wine correlate with quality. So if I don't know what the prices are, I like a $5 wine. The average person likes a $5 wine more than a $90 wine. Mm. But if you tell them what the prices are, then they like the $90 wine more because there's a confirmatory bias there. Right. right? So we have this idea. There's a price placebo effect. We have this idea that $90, $90 wine must be better. And if I can't taste that superiority, there's something wrong with me. Not the wine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good example. Do you have any examples of more sort of, devastating results from uh, having let biases control our decisions? Sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's sort of one organizational fail. Well, there's two amazing organizational failures, um, you know, in my country's history. um, One that is used in business cases all around the world now is a simulation of the decision to launch the Space Shuttle Challenger. Um, So... Um, and people may not remember, but there was a tragic case where the shuttle exploded because of a damaged O-ring. Right. And so what was happening was there's a lot of pressure on NASA to launch the space shuttle. The engineers from Wharton Thiokol had sent information over to NASA, right? Um, and that information was ambiguous. It suggested that at low temperatures, there might be an O-ring failure, right? But 
it was very hard for NASA to see in that data whether or not the temperature was a causal factor in terms of that failure because what those engineers only sent over were examples where there was failure. They didn't show cases where there was success too. And so people couldn't see that relationship and NASA felt under such pressure to launch that because it was ambiguous, they decided to launch anyway and we see that result afterward. The second major decision that actually spurred a lot of my research um, from the government side was the decision to invade Iraq. So the decision from intelligence agencies that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and that spurred a lot of the decision-making, or at least provided people with an excuse to go forward and invade Iraq. Um, And intelligence agencies afterwards were very very concerned with the role of confirmation bias in that decision, which has had you know traumatic effects on millions of individuals. It's you know cost thousands of lives and trillion dollars and um, and, and, and the conf- the confirmation bias. The definition of that is that you are making a decision based on what you already know and what you would want to happen. Or how, how do you define it? Well, I would say confirmation has a couple different kinds of features, right? So one is. We tend to have an idea of what will happen, or we have a theory that we believe might be true. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we might say, for example, I think this product will be successful, and uh-huh. you might ask your team to figure out to research whether or not when you bring it to market there'll be a success or failure, right? And yep. so you are giving them, if you ask them, do you think this product will be successful? You're giving them some directionality in how you expect it to turn out, and then what they might do is search for information that supports that hypothesis. So the first part of that confirmation bias is looking for more information that supports the hypothesis or that might negate alternatives, right? Yeah. So they might look for information that it's mm-hmm. going to be successful and information suggesting that it won't be unsuccessful. And then the second piece of that is looking at how people evaluate the information that they've gathered, right? So if there's information that it will be successful, and information that it won't be successful, I might be likely to overweight or place more importance on the information that confirms my belief. Right. right. And so that's, we see that in all kinds of domains. And many people have thought about that as being sort of the mother of cognitive, all cognitive biases. Right. Yeah. So okay. we think about how are people biased in their information search and evaluation. Um, confirmation bias really carries through a lot of kinds of decisions we see that managers make, that politicians make, that um, everyday people make as well. Yeah. So how can we pick that up in ourselves then, that we are uh, actually being run by our bias in that case and, 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 and prevent that from happening, I guess? Sure. Well, there's there's sort of basic f- five basic strategies for debiasing that have been in place, or four have been in place since 1982. Um, and the last one sort of we just found to be effective um, this year. Uh, so we could think about it as the first thing is learning about cognitive biases. That's something yeah. that you and, you know, viewers are doing right now, right? Yeah. The, the second thing is to learn what, what is the bias, right? Mm-hmm. The second thing is learning about, about its directionality on our decisions and our judgment. Yeah. Right? So we talked about confirmation bias. We now know that when we're thinking about testing a hypothesis, we're more likely to look for evidence that supports it than negates it. Yeah, And so learning about that directionality is really helpful because it tells us what direction we need to correct for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what kinds of areas of evidence are we missing? 
Yeah. And then the third piece would be getting feedback on our decisions, right? So we might look at some of the kinds of choices that we made in the past, our managerial decisions or our predictions that we made um, or the things that we were testing and seeing, okay, well, did that turn out the way I expected it to? Was I right? Where were my mistakes? Right. And, you know, sometimes another way of doing that in real time is to have someone play devil's advocate or have yourself play devil's advocate right, yep. in a decision. So if you have a group making a choice, you could have someone say, you could say, you know what, this is going to be uncomfortable, but you're going to argue against everything that, that the rest of us come up with. And so your position is to be sort of an instigator to try to help us think through some of the holes in our logic. And, and then the last case would be sort of coaching. So getting these kinds of strategies that we're using. So for confirmation bias, for example, we could say that people exhibit what's called a test positive strategy. They tend to look for evidence that supports their hypothesis and looks for evidence that negates its alternatives. And so what we would suggest to them is then think about um, information that would negate your hypothesis or support alternatives. Or another way of testing that would be to try to, if you have a hypothesis, right, I think this product is going to be a success. And why don't you flip your hypothesis around and, and test the question? Well, let me test the question, will it fail, right? And so you, if you test both of these kinds of questions, both ends of it, you're less likely to engage in that kind of bias sort of reasoning uh, that will lead you to be overconfident in your beliefs and prescriptions. So I can imagine that it is easier to pick up on other people's biases than than your own. <laughs> uh, and, and I guess the, the strategies you just uh, explained uh, would work or could work just as good as the um, person identifying someone else's bias and, and sort of coaching them through uh, how that might create a negative outcome or a negative decision and having someone uh, do that with you is probably the best way of, of, of negating this or de-biased, de-biasing yourself, I guess. Uh, that was a nice word. Uh, but yeah, picking it up in oneself, in oneself is probably, uh, is always difficult, but knowing about it, as, as you say, would make it possible to do so. Yeah, and we've we've uh, there's there's sort of two pieces of what you said that ring true with what we found in the research literature. So the first is that people show this biased blind spot. So we tend to view ourselves as less susceptible to biased behavior than other people, yeah, right? Of course. So it's you know we use our introspection to think about whether or not we were biased, right? So let's say that we're hiring a, a job candidate. And we look at 10 different candidates and we end up hiring someone who's very similar to ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. We might say that, well, familiarity or stereotypes might not have influenced my hiring. I didn't really feel like I was having any kind of biased thoughts while I was making my hiring decisions. So I wasn't using bias in any way and bias really didn't affect my decision. Yeah. Whereas other people, when they look at that kind of choice, don't use introspection to evaluate that kind of behavior. They don't have access to your thoughts. Right. And so instead they use your behavior and bias is sometimes more easily detected in behavior than it is in our self-examination. Yeah. Makes so sense. we, we developed this bias blind spot scale um, that's publicly available. But um, what we found, for example, is we ran a study with 661 participants in an online sample. Mm-hmm. Of that sample, 85% of people said that they were less biased than the average person in that sample. Yeah. One person, only one person said they were more biased than the 
average person in that sample. And about 12.5% said that they were as biased as other people. So out of 600 people, only one person is saying that other people are less biased than themselves, yeah. which is statistically impossible. Right? <laughs> yes. And so, yeah. you know, but the yeah. second piece is really interesting too, is that we found that people, um, people can actually learn quite a lot from watching other people uh-huh. making good and bad decisions. So we have seen in new studies that we just have coming out in organizational behavior and human decision processes. It's a really good management journal. Um, there, what we see is that people can learn from watching others make good and bad decisions. And they don't necessarily have to watch great decision makers or terrible decision makers to learn. So simply seeing someone making decisions and getting some feedback about those choices helps. And what's really helpful too is seeing how other people use these kinds of decision strategies. So learning about the decision strategy is great in the abstract, but it's really helpful for people to have a human model, someone showing them how to do that. Just as you might, you know, if you want to fix your computer or if you want to learn some new statistics or do a makeup tutorial or learn a new how to do new tricks skiing or skateboarding, you might yeah. go to YouTube and watch people demonstrate these kinds of skills. Mm-hmm. We see that seeing people use these kinds of decision strategies is really helpful in learning and learning how to implement those strategies in their own decision making. Interesting. So you mentioned that one of the tactics used to sort of unbias oneself uh, was uh, you found that this year. So that that seems very recent. So which one of, of the tactics was, was that? Yeah, this observational learning uh, tactic. So what we did in those experiments okay. was we taught people an averaging rule. So what happens when people are making estimations, like you might say, how long do I think it will take for this product to launch? You might think in your mind, well, it's going to take six months. And someone Mm -hmm. else on your team might think, well, it's going to take 12 months. And so what we find is that on average, when you have a pool of judges who have different information or different ideas, what happens is they're more likely to be accurate if they average their judgments, right? So if, if, if you ask, if you say, this is going to take six months, Carrie, how long do you think it's going to take? I say, George is going to take 12 months. And then you have to make a final judgment or a final call. You average our judgments and you say, well, it's going to be nine months. On average, those kinds of that kind of averaging tends to benefit people. Hmm. And what, what we did is we told some people about this averaging rule. We showed other people someone using the averaging rule. And we had a third group that, that learned the rule and saw someone use it. And so everyone was better than people who just didn't learn the rule. So we tested them before and after the intervention and people who just practiced it twice, they got better, but not by much. Okay. But what we found is that the combination of learning the rule and seeing someone else use it tended to teach the rule best. And when the information was good, tended to result in the best kinds of judgments. Hmm. Very interesting. So what do you know about cognitive biases today that you didn't know five years ago? I, I think there's sort of two things that could be pulled out from the last five years of learning, for myself at least. One is that 10 years ago, I thought that we couldn't do much about our cognitive biases. I thought that the way that we reduce cognitive biases is by incentivizing people. So let's say that we want to get people to drink less soda. I could charge more in terms of a soda tax. 
Yeah. And the other way that we could do this is through changing the environment in which people are yeah, making decisions. Right. So the I might say that the largest soda I'll sell is, you know, 20 ounces or a quarter of like 250 milliliters, right? Yep. And by selling a smaller soda, people can still drink more soda if they want to. They just have to open another container, right? And yep. that the kind of check on their consumption that opening another container provides should reduce how much soda they consume. And so mm -hmm. you could think about these as incentives and nudges. And the field has largely embraced both of them as effective means for making better decisions. But what we've learned is that training can work and help people in ways that aren't necessarily specific to the task at hand. Before, we thought that cognitive bias training was much like weather forecasting, right? So people can become yeah. pretty good weather forecasters. But if you ask them trivia questions and ask them how many of them they got right, they're just as overconfident as undergraduates, right? Mm -hmm. um, who haven't learned to these more advanced rules of predicting prob probabilistic events. Right. But what we find here is that some of the ways in which debiasing was being tested was with measures that weren't that sensitive. And so we can see actual like substantial improvements in decision-making with very simple kinds of interventions. Hmm. And so that has been a really encouraging piece of evidence that suggests that we can get better at decision-making under the right kinds of circumstances. And that work is really in its early phases and we're just testing these kinds of existence proofs. Can we debias people? But that's been very exciting in terms of thinking about new kinds of ways of improving human judgment. And the second thing that has come out of this conversation in the cognitive bias literature is trying to really understand the difference between bias and noise. And that is a, you know, a new topic that's sort of emerging right now. And we could think about bias as being, bias as being this kind of systematic error where we are, you know, in confirmation bias, we might say, well, if we're testing our hypothesis about a product, do you think it's going to be, you know, you think our project will be done in six in six months, right? Um, you know, we might, we, you and I, but most might both systematically underestimate how long it will take for the project to come to market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but noise would, and that could be that underestimation rather than overestimation is bias. But we could also think about noise as being an important contributor, right? Right. So, um, and what would so, be an example of noise? Uh, right. So if you have a narrower confidence interval than I do, right? Uh -huh. So if I have no idea how long that project's going to take, I'm going to be much, there's going to be much more noise in my judgment than if you have a good idea, right? And so businesses really need to think not only about reducing bias, but also reducing noise. So noise can be really costly variance, right? If, mm. By trying to learn more about, you know, sometimes we, necessarily reduce bias but there's other areas in which we can reduce noise by thinking about different kinds of intervals by doing research um, by using talking to experts and so that can be as in many cases as efficacious as reducing people's cognitive biases interesting so one trend in in selling and buying um, is that more stakeholders are involved and engaged nowadays than let's say a decade back for different reasons how would you say that cognitive biases and noise impacts a group of people making a decision more or less than individual people? Well, there's a lot of evidence of groupthink. So mm -hmm. you could think about if we get a group of people together, they're more likely to agree um, on an outcome than if they made those kinds of choices individually. And that's been work that 
has evidence trailing back to the 60s. Um, yeah. you know, and so one way to reduce that kind of bias in those kinds of choices is through assigning a devil's advocate. That's sort of been a long-standing tradition in, in the literature about how to try to reduce groupthink. Uh, so and we, but we could also see cases of bias and noise there too, right? So if we're trying to think about sales targets, for example, um, you know, people might overestimate the number of units that they might sell, but we could think about what that plausible range would be or a subjective mm -hmm. confidence interval. And so noise would be trying to become more accurate in thinking about how, how tight that range is versus how wide. Right. Hmm. Very interesting. So where do you see this space uh, going in the in the next five to 10 years? Where do you expect yourself to end up? What solutions are you seeing on the horizon? Yeah, so we are now showing that we can improve people's judgment and decision making uh, in fairly academic kinds of contexts, right? So we've tested it in the laboratory and we've tested it in the classroom. And the assumption is that it's going to carry out in these more less structured or more unstructured kinds of field cases. But the sort of frontier right now is seeing the many cases in which cognitive bias might um, influence decision-making in the field and interventions could reduce it, right? So well, a lot of financial firms are doing in-house cognitive bias interventions right now. Um, and you could think about also, we wanna learn more about the structure of bias and developing interest interventions that are better at reducing cognitive bias. So right now we have an idea that we can improve decision-making, but we're not exactly sure what's working. And so people yeah, throw yeah. the kitchen sink at the problem. Right. So everything that might work is being used as an intervention together. And okay. so, you know, thinking more about different kinds of biases and, and how do they differ, and then what kinds of interventions are going to be most effective for each is really an exciting area that's going to explode, I think, in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, super interesting. And if people listening to this show want to learn more or engage in this kind of research, what would you advise them to do? Sure. Well, you could start with some of the videos that were used in our in our experiments. They're freely available, uh, provided by the United States government. Um, send you the links for that um, that you can watch them on YouTube. Each one's about half an hour. Um, we also Super. developed some video games that cost about $7 million to develop and have larger effects on the similar kinds of biases. Um, and I'm happy to put people into contact with that as well. But I think in general, the, what's exciting about this literature is that learning about de-biasing is no longer just sort of entertaining, right? It's not just like watching a, right. you know, infotainment, right? Uh, we're actually, what we're learning is actually translated, can be translated into better decision-making as well. And so I would encourage people to read books, um, to you know, study the literature, and um, certainly if they, have, if they have questions or research ideas, um, I'm always happy to talk about that. So I did see uh, in one of your papers that the effect was greater with the, with the games approach. Could you mention how how much greater it was, and, and and do you have a hypothesis why that why that's so? Sure, um, we found much larger effect sizes when people played debiasing games. They're called serious games, and the structure of the game is it's sort of a detective game, and okay. there are three levels, and in each level you are trying to solve a mystery and ask questions, and those questions elicit different cognitive biases, and at the end of the level we tell people about the biases. 
we give them real-time feedback on how their choices in the game might have exhibited bias and what kinds of strategies they could use to reduce that. And then they also get practice immediately afterwards on using those strategies. Hmm. The videos just told people about cognitive biases and showed them scenarios in which it might happen. And so this kind of, if you think about those, going back to those strategies for debiasing, the games are employing all four of the strategies at Mm -hmm. once, whereas the video is really just sort of telling people about bias and its directionality. And so it seems like having that kind of feedback is really helpful for people uh, learn and crystallize that information. And we see, um, you know, really large reductions in people's susceptibility to the cognitive biases that we train them on in these games, both immediately and as long as three months later. Um, Very interesting. Yeah. And we even see it when people don't know that they're being tested. So we had a paper um, a couple of years ago where we came out and we asked people um, to play the games. Um, These were all MBA students at HEC Paris. And then afterwards, what we did was inserted a simulation of the challenger um, launch decision in all of their courses. And so what we found was that people who had completed the training before they had that case in their courses were much Mm -hmm. less likely to launch uh, than people who had been untrained, even though we never connected the training and the case. And the cognitive bias was not mentioned when people were completing it. Huh. Super exciting. And these video, these games, can they be accessed by anyone or do you have to pay to try them out or how does that work? Yeah, I don't have, I don't profit from the games at all, but there is a company that um, provides licenses both for schools and for corporations and I'm pretty happy to pass that information. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. All right. So, um, that's what I had on my list to ask you today. <laughs> I think this is a super exciting topic, and I thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me, George. And uh, yeah, I, I will uh, point everyone to the links that you share with us so that they can uh, go find out more about this. So, Great. It's been a pleasure to talk about this. And if people are interested in more about the research, I'm always happy to send them information and, and talk to them more. Thanks. Super. I'm sure they will be. So thanks a lot. See you soon. See ya. This podcast is brought to you by Membrane.com, the sales enablement platform that helps you make how you sell into your competitive advantage. Whether you need to prospect better, manage your opportunities and pipeline better, improve your account planning and account growth activities, Membrane is the solution for you. So go to Membrane.com and fire up a trial today. You will not regret it because remember how you sell matters.